Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. Happy March to you. I am so excited to announce that today's show features Bill Landay with a book called All That Is Mine I Carry With Me. Here's Bill on The Thriller Zone. Um, I do want to ask this. I'm David Temple. I'm the host. Have you, do you have a hint of this show? No. no. Okay. <laughs> That's Okay. <laughs> I spent weeks referring and researching your book that I love, but it's okay. <laughs> I go from one to the next. Bill, I do want to say welcome to The Thriller Zone. Happy to be here. This book, which was, we're going to get to in a second, All That Is Mine, I Carry With Me. Uh, when I first saw that, I'm going to say it first. I'm like, oh, it's a, it's a house. It's a storm. You know, there's probably some evil going on inside. <laughs> who, who knows why? And uh, I don't want to geek out too much out of the gate, but easily one of the best books I've read this year, maybe in the last couple of years. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. And I'm not saying that to be nice because we just met and you don't know me and you've never watched my show before. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I do want to say I learned of you. Uh, I am a new fan. I'm going to go ahead and give you that up in case you haven't figured that out by now. My wife and I watched Defending Jacob, which is, was that book number three? Yes. Okay. The uh, eight-episode TV series starring uh, Chris Evans, Michelle Dockery of uh, Downton Abbey, and uh, Jaden Marshall, or Martin, Martell, sorry, as Jacob, which, dude, that show, and and again, uh, usually when I start out of the gate with so many accolades, people are sitting there going, yeah, right. But one of the best TV series uh, of the last couple of years, easy. Oh, thank you. I, I would love to take credit for it, but that uh, that really wasn't my doing. It's a, uh, a a wonderful writer named Mark Bombeck who who really had the lead on that and who deserves all the credit. Uh, while I don't want to argue with my guest, who is the star, I have to say it did start with you, Bill. So <laughs> that's true. In fact, it's a very strange. It, we would go to the set a few times, and it is very strange to see actors and, uh, you know, a cast of however many and a crew of 200 bringing to life this thing that you just made up. It makes it real in a way that a book never quite becomes real. Right. Uh, it's very strange to hear actors reciting lines that you just invented. It, it's a, just a surreal process. I, uh, I, I I see that I get that it's I can't imagine it uh, in one sense the fact that you yeah you're uh, especially with the business that's so solitary you're you're in your room you're at a coffee shop wherever you write and you're knee deep in this for weeks months maybe years at at, at a time and all of a sudden you st- stumble onto a little slice of Hollywood and it's oh I I wrote that phrase oh I wrote that one too I mean that's it's so cool isn't it. It's very true. And that that's the thing that is most striking about it. I spend years in a room alone, and that's just the nature of what I do. And the product, books too, are consumed in privacy. Even if you're on a crowded subway car reading the book, you are consuming it internally all by yourself. And you go into this collaborative profession 
where there are literally hundreds of people involved and the way it's consumed too is you know people sitting around in a room it's a shared experience it's completely different and it's really for someone who's been uh isolated by this work for years at a time yeah it just feels so seductive you just want to be part of it you know you also want to see it done again and again don't you <laughs> you want to it's uh i i look at it as a lottery ticket i can't imagine it happening more than once if it does i'd certainly be all for it and here's the other thing bill uh defending jacob for instance that was created i'm gonna say 2012 so we're talking about 10 almost yeah 11 years ago mm-hmm. and then it takes uh, how soon after it debuted and it debuted at new york times bestselling list didn't it yeah yeah, yeah it was on the list very quickly <laughs> Okay, let's just stop and absorb that a second. So you've got that. How long before that to the gestation time of actually showing up on screen? Ballpark. It had a little bit of a tortured history because it didn't. It wound up on Apple TV, but it was originally optioned for film. And so it was with a studio and they kind of sat on it. And, uh, you know, lots of things are optioned and never made. It's a very shallow funnel. There's a lot of material coming in and very little coming out. Um, So it sat for a couple of years before it got to this production company. It's a very long, haphazard kind of process. And you you need a long string of yeses and one no can end it. Yeah. So you have to get a little lucky and it took a long time before it got to this producer. But I have to say, once it got to this guy uh, who was really passionate about it and could make it happen, it did. It moved very quickly at that point. Wow. Not to drop names, but I'm going to do it a lot this show. Um, Are you familiar with a guy named Mark Graney? I know the name. Mark Graney. Yeah. He wrote a series called The Gray Man. Uh, Ryan Gosling has since then turned it into a film, oh, stars in the film. Great conversation I'm having with Mark, not recently. He wrote that book, I want to say, 09. It took from then, I'm referring to the <laughs> conversation, from then to now for it to become this monstrous Hollywood bonanza. There's no rhyme or reason. There's no rhyme or reason to it, and there's no... It could have gone that long and never made it to the finish line. Also, some <laughs> books just languish on the vine forever. Yeah. Uh, so you never know. It's you have to be good, but you have to be lucky also. And you got to be a hell of a patient guy, too. You do. Although I have to say for me, I've always looked at that as outside of my uh, uh, control. Mm-hmm. I don't take an active hand in those. I They're kind of. Uh, uh, parceled out to film people, I really look at novel writing as a different art form. Uh, and and these are just properties of mine that are being resold to create a new uh, artwork from scratch. Right. So I don't sit around looking at my watch while it's uh, out there being shopped. Yeah. Because... I just don't consider it my project anymore. If I were actively involved in writing it, uh, then I might be. Yeah. Uh, but up till now, I have not been. Very healthy approach, Bill. Very healthy. Now, I, I, I we're going to, one more point, and then I want to get on to this book. But it's hard to believe, I cannot imagine, and this just shows you how fast time is moving, that it's been nearly three years 
that uh, defending Jacob came. It feels like in one sense, and this is how you know a great story, it just hangs with you, and it just hangs with you on some kind of a level I can't even quite describe it. Three years ago, it's up for what? Two two primetime Emmys, two wins, eight nominations, and... You know, that doesn't just happen every time. You know, you can get something greenlit and into production and people go, oh, yeah, it's pretty good. But to get that kind of accolades. Yeah, it it was really an outlier experience for sure. You know, when uh, I mean, the people who were involved in it, uh, you know, starting with Chris Evans are just these are top shelf people. And those are the kind of people who you know, 10 or 20 years ago, wouldn't have even considered doing TV. Right. So the idea that these A-list movie stars are are doing a series when it's your first uh, book that's being adapted <laughs> is is not typical. I, <laughs> I fully am aware of how lucky I am, and I probably will never be that lucky again, but that's that's okay. Let's not say that. And by the way, folks, for those of you who are not watching the show but listening to it, you should see his face because... Bill, your face, the smile in your eyes, that that wonder and that excitement, that shit never goes away, man. And that's just true. that that's what keeps you going, doesn't it? It is it's super fun. Yeah. yeah. The whole the whole experience was fun. And it's so uh as I say, it's so different and such an antidote to the solitude of writing yeah. that it's just it's a dream from start to finish. Well, I would be a bonehead if I did not say this weekend. Drop whatever you're doing and just watch it on, I think it's still on Apple TV. Oh, sure. Defending Jaguar. Yeah, watch it because you're going to love it. And by the way, one side note, I'm a hobbyist filmmaker myself, and I did three tours of duty in L.A. Insert chuckle there. It's it's well-deserved for cinematography because that's the one thing I walked away. I'm like, man, it, it isn't just great. I mean, Chris Evans, sure, he deserved the award for uh, that he got. And Michelle was fantastic. Uh, the performance of Jaden. That's what pulls you in. But that's cinematography, which a lot of people, like my wife is just now really learning to appreciate that. And she's like, man, this has a different kind of a look. It pulls you in by its look and its color. And it's, I'm like, cinematography. It's very true. It has this cool blue sort of palette, a blue gray kind of muted tones. It's really, I agree. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Okay, now let's jump into, now this is a, it's a handful of a title, All That Is Mine I Carry With Me. (laughs) It's a title that's longer than most books. Yeah, (laughs) and I have to always look at it to read it that way. That's what a dunce I am, but um, it comes out in March, uh, and let me just start here, because I'm going to drown you in accolades. I'm just going to, I'm going to tee you up now. (laughs) <laughs> and it, anybody who knows me knows that uh, I will do the business side of, hey, that was a fantastic read, Bob. Uh, really, thanks for coming. And then there'll be the times that I'm like, Bill, holy shit, this thing was rocking. <laughs> and that's probably here for it. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to stand in that little space. Here's what I love the most. And my wife uh, was, uh, she kind of comes through the room every once in a while and looks over my shoulder, where are you? And all of a sudden, at one point, I'm I'm halfway through it. And she goes, you just started that this morning. I'm like, well, this is what happens when, A, you have a solid story, B, engaging premise, and C, long pages of conversation, which I personally love. 
a lot of people going, dude, give me some backstory. Tell me more of this story. Talk, talk, mm-hmm. talk, talk. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's 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 the delicious part of this, especially, yeah, okay, sure, it moves the story along faster, but more importantly, it's the way you constructed it. You know, it cuts through so much of the formality that we do when we spend so much time. He said, she said, he glanced, he looked. No, boom, 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 down the pages. And you know, so insert appreciation there. <laughs> I love that too. And I, I, that's an Elmore Leonard style of, of moving a story along and just expressing things as, as, you know, doing your exposition through your dialogue. And it's, I, I feel like it, uh, it involves the reader in a way that those long prosy passages don't. Because it calls on you to be interpreting as you're reading and you have to be awake and alert and involved. It's I, I I love it as a as a reader when I encounter that kind of storytelling. Yeah, and Elmore Leonard, what a great pull! He's one of my favorites of all time. <clears throat> he was the master at that, at, at telling telling stories through dialogue. The master, and he would take, you know, sure he's famous for take out all the stuff that bores people or something to that effect. But the way he cuts to the chase and dialogue, and you did this too, and you would give the reader just enough of a hint. Stephanie, colon, so you'd know. You wouldn't have to go, he turned to Stephanie and said, or Stephanie said. And, <laughs> and and not to belabor the point, but I just wanted to applaud you because it's little things like that that make the reading process uh, so efficient. And and here's my biggest point. I want to make sure I, I want to say this, is that I love, and I just had this same conversation with a gentleman recently, Rick Blywis about the art of conversation. And and I feel like we've kind of lost it, don't you think? I mean, it's this... You, you think of all the noise of social media and all the clickbait and, and, and all that, but sometimes I think, maybe not lost, but I feel like we have... No, I'm going to say lost. We've lost the art of conversation. <laughs> yeah, there, I said it. It's true. Well, we've all... We've been all isolated now for a few years and it it is true the one thing to keep in mind though is that when you're writing dialogue like that for fiction it's stylized uh it's meant to uh ring in your head in an evocative way you know in a in a way that seems um true to life uh but if you actually were to transcribe conversations that people have and just put that down on paper the way people actually speak, it would be incomprehensible. One of the experiences you get as a lawyer is you get trial transcripts, which are literal word-for-word transcripts of your own speech, and you realize how much is communicated by facial expressions and your intonation and gestures. And so when you are writing dialogue, dialogue like that, that reads in a smooth, frictionless way that you can, your eye just glides right down the page and you seem to be following that conversation. Do bear in mind that that is uh, uh, not intended to be uh, a literal transcription of the way human beings speak. Yeah, but it feels that way. And so, yeah, exactly. it feels that way. And I understand that. I understand that we often talk in shorthand and we skip over, we contract and we skip over details. But how did you learn that? And, and, and again, four books in, 
this feels like somebody who's been, your work feels like 12, 15, 18 books in. <laughs> it, uh, well, it feels that way to me too, because I write in a way that is, uh, you know, I don't publish a lot. I don't, uh, I don't publish anything that I feel isn't my best. I'm, I mean, I don't, I came to this from another profession and the whole point of this was to work at the outer limit of your talent and, and swing for the fences every time. So for me, I kind of feel like, you know, I'll take the time and, and agonize and throw out a lot of material along the way so that when, you know, a reader sees my name on a book, uh, they know that it's, that it's the best I could do given the tools I had at the time. So, um, Thank you, but <laughs> that is my experience. It, it does feel like 12 to 18 books to me as well. Well, and I mean that in a complimentary fashion, meaning it feels sure. seasoned, yeah, like a professional. And, and let's, let's go ahead and call out what you used to be, which is a former assistant district attorney, right? Correct. Which you are clearly now writing full-time, correct? Yes. I mean, at this ripe young age, for crying out loud, you're, you're able to... <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> You're able to turn from one and get into your real passion. But here's <laughs> people are going to see my gray beard and they'll know you're lying, but okay. Uh, I don't see it. All right. So <laughs> let's, let's talk about that for just a quick second. What is your favorite part of the writing process? Because if you're spending your four books in, you're not releasing very frequently. You're waiting until it's absolutely perfect. I get that. I totally get that. You're not. You're not. You're not dishing out your. Hey, I had an idea. I just whipped this thing out, and let's see if we can sell it. What's your favorite part of the practice? Um, that's a difficult question to answer because to me, every part of the process is difficult and doesn't get any easier in my experience, uh, even as you continue writing and, and presumably uh, getting more skilled, I don't feel any more uh, mastery than after four books than I did after one. Um, it's always a struggle. It's always difficult. Um, and so to me, when I think of the favorite uh, parts of it, it's really just the opportunity to do this work, which our society does not privilege very many people to do. But it's an exceptional kind of work precisely because it gives you that chance to to be excellent, uh, to, you know, to live with passion and work with passion and, and produce work that at least aspires to be transcendent and, and long lived. Um, most of the work that most people do is pretty ephemeral and pretty uh, local and doesn't really give you the opportunity to to put a dent in the universe that way. So this is, is a privilege to be able uh, to have one of those, one of those jobs that lets you, lets you at least try and gives you a shot. I don't, I, uh, that sounds grandiose and I don't mean to say that I succeed at that necessarily. And I think that most books that most writers produce uh, vanish uh, and they, you know, they sink like a stone, but every now and then, you at least have a chance of a book that will endure. A couple of things that popped into my head when you were saying that, and it and it's so you're so spot on. One is uh, my wife and I are watching this new documentary on Netflix about golfers, and I and I turned to her last night. I'm like, why haven't 
why hasn't anybody done a documentary of behind the scenes of professional golfing before? Because it was mm. fascinating. And part of what's fascinating is the fact that you realize that there's only, we're going to call it 100, 150. Don't anybody bust my chops because I don't remember the exact number. But it's, you know, it's 100, 150 guys in the whole world that are like at the top of their profession. However, I'm going to, I'm going to get, I'm going to go out on a limb here, guess, Bill, that there's more than 150 people playing golf in the world, uh, me included, which is a, a comic, a, a comedy in of itself. But here's my point. When I was watching this show, I realized, man, the odds of getting to that top tier are so, so hard and so tight and so few. It's amazing anybody can. And then these guys, and then you wonder, how do they make millions upon millions? Right. Same thing. It's with even worse with the with the switch to digital now. It, it it's worked essentially the way it's worked in in music and increasingly in movies too. That there are a few hits at the top. Yep that get a lot of resources put behind them and a lot of uh, eyeballs on them. And then there's a steep drop off to <laughs> what we used to call the mid list. Yeah. And so it's, you know, uh, new writers, there's, there's always an excitement about a new writer coming on the scene and there's, you know, maybe what, 20 or 30 brand name kind of writers whose every book is published. And the people who are in between the mid list writers are really having a hard time uh, making it. And in my case, it was my third book that that hit. Um, but for some people, you know, it's their sixth or seventh book. And like a band that can only stay together for so long before they find their hit song, a lot of mid-list writers in this uh, a, a economy aren't going to be able to hang in there long enough to to learn the craft and get to their big book. And, and so it it feels like inevitably it has to be a net loss to to society because there are some, you know, some of those mid-list writers who will not graduate to to the top because it used to be that the whales at the top would support the mid-list. Right. And, and increasingly that model is broken. Well, here's another thing. Depressing thought, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and a little discouraging and a, and a little sad in a fashion. But um, I think this is where, and I'm going to sound like a self-help book, so forgive me. I'll tell you that up front. But it's this is where tenacity, um, like tremendous tenacity and patience and just just digging in and, and doing the work. Uh, comes at it. It, it back to this golf thing. I don't know why I'm making such a big deal about this. I think, <laughs> I think because it's so good, but it relates to you. This is all about you, Bill. So just hang with me. Isn't everything. Well, <laughs> as it should be. <laughs> so I'm watching these guys last night and they're, you know, they're, they're playing like Tiger Woods. Let's use him as an example. He would do things that no one ever on the planet was ever possibly could imagine. But but when you see his documentary, he realizes at a tiny age, he's out there swinging that club hundreds of times a day. Well, and that makes you go, well, of course, if I, if I practice this uh, to that degree, I could probably get there. And this is my point. I challenge writers not to give up, um, just to keep writing. And if you don't think it's that great, okay, go, well, this is good. Maybe I'll self-publish or whatever, but I'm not going to take it to the bigs and, and keep moving. But the thing is to keep moving, right? I think that's definitely true. And there's no, there's no easy way around that because there's no reason for anyone to 
believe in an unpublished writer. Right. You have to, especially at the beginning, you have to grind your way through to at least get to the point of credibility. Because technically, anyone who hasn't published a novel is an unpublished writer. It's a credential that you could claim regardless of talent or accomplishment. And so you have to at least grind it out to get to that point where you have a first publication where you can, or a first manuscript where you can at least prove that you have, there's a germ of something there. And that takes a lot of grinding and a lot of, uh, of uh, doggedness, perseverance through doubt, because it's, it's reasonable for other people to doubt you until you've proven it. You gotta prove it first. And that, that's a years long process. It, yeah. it really is. And it's hard, you know, a, a, a band or a director can be out there producing and sharing and performing in a way that a writer really can't. A writer has to grind away in solitude for, for years uh, before you get to the point of even having something you can show. Yeah. As uh, Brad Taylor said this past uh, week or so, he goes, he goes, David, if I had any idea that it was going to be as hard as it is. And this guy had a New York Times, <laughs> New York Times bestseller out of the gate. And he said, if I had known it was going to be this hard, I never would have done it. I totally agree. Yeah. If anybody's considering this run, you should run a thousand miles in the opposite direction. This is not a fun profession. There's no. And like I said, it doesn't get easier. You yeah. the goalposts just keep moving back and back and back. And it's it, it's just it's a grind. Yeah, it's a privilege, but it's also a grind. And everybody thinks it's easy because well, all you gotta do is sit down, and put pa words on paper. That's all you gotta do. It's true. Yeah. And everybody has written something, even if it's yeah. only in high school. And so everybody feels like they're on the spectrum of you know, if I were a little better, then I could do this. And everybody has had the experience of reading a book and thinking, I could do this. Right. It reads easy enough, so how much harder could it be to write it? So, <laughs> All right. Uh, I do have this rhetorical question. What is it with attorneys that uh, t t uh, ends up being turning out such a amazing authors or in the <laughs> law profession? I don't get it. Uh, I think it's two things. I think it's one, people who have a verbal facility uh, are drawn to that profession because it rewards that. Uh, you stand up in court and you tell stories or you at least string together sentences in a coherent way, uh, in a way that uh, other professions like accounting or architecture don't necessarily uh, require. The other thing is it gives you good material to write about. Yeah. Uh, all drama is built on conflict of some kind and courtrooms are where we settle our conflicts. And so you are presented with these stories that are just ready-made material for you. The hardest thing to, to find is a good story to tell. And as a lawyer, you just, they kind of keep crossing your desk every day. Yeah. So, so I, I think it's both of those things. And it's just, you know, a courtroom is such a, a stagey, theatrical uh, <laughs> situation anyway. So you have your you have your material presented to you. I was going to say, is it any surprise that courtroom dramas from way back were such hits on television? I'm I'm going back to Perry Mason, which dates me. I'm sure it, there were... it just works. It it yeah. just works. I mean, it's it's a dramatic uh, uh, stage to begin with. You have the conflict built in. The roles are formal, and there's a limited amount of explaining you have to do because. We all kind of understand how courtrooms work, even if you've never set foot in a courtroom. 
So it's this formal, stagey, familiar uh, format that people are, are able to plug into even without any special training. And speaking of attorneys and judges in courtroom, uh, I haven't been this thrilled by a psychological thriller since I read uh, David Ellis's Look Closer. Are you familiar, familiar with David Ellis? No, I, I know the writer. I don't know that book, though. I just happen to have it here in handy. Um, and another house on the cover. Another house on the cover. <laughs> dude, I ripped through. May I call you, dude? You may. I ripped. This is knocking on 500 pages. One of the best books I read in 2022. Sounds great. I'll add it to my list. Please do. I mean, and tell them I sent you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, but seriously, um, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent because it's going to sound ethereal, but I'm going to do it anyway. I know that writing is a collection of words creatively orchestrated to, you know, form an engaging story. But I genuinely marvel, and I don't use this, I don't think I've ever used this word on the show, and I'm 120 plus episodes in, I I genuinely marveled at the signature style and voice of your book that cuts through. It's so specific. Well, thank you. It's, um, It's a complicated book in some ways, and it's, it's hard to talk about without spoilers, um, because it's structurally complex as well as being an interesting story. It, it, it's told in a way that isn't necessarily linear, and some of the jolts and the changes in time frame and point of view require the reader to, to do some of the assembly uh, uh, herself. Well, and that I find is engaging too, because it, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about reading is it's an active uh, art form. It requires the audience to participate with music or movies or plays. You can sit there and the the show will be performed for you. Yeah. And you take it in passively with a book. You're presented with essentially the sheet music. It's a bunch of squiggly lines on a page and you bring to it your skill as a reader in lifting those words up and performing the story for yourself in your head. So when the, a book is presented to you, that is kind of a puzzle and requires you to make some leaps yourself, it engages the reader in a way that is even more active and more participatory. And you feel this uh, uh, active involvement in the story in a way that uh, a flatter form of storytelling doesn't necessarily engage you. And so that's kind of the, the, the goal of that kind of storytelling. It's, it's the novelist and the reader working together to create this experience. I couldn't have said it better and without giving anything away. Let's do this. Let's take a short break. When Very we come, hard to talk about this book without giving things away. <laughs> I know it is. And I've, I'm biting my tongue. We're going to take a short break. We're with William Landay. And the book, of course, is All That Is Mine I Carry With Me. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by The Story Factory and the upcoming visionary genre-bending debut novel, Grand Theft AI by James Cox. In San Francisco 2051, kids now get high-slotting wafers of data under the ear, and they'll pay fat crypto for the best at the hottest club in the city, The Fang. 
Thief Baz Covain and underworld fixer Rhea Rose team up with a crack group of cyber misfits to steal from the Fang's psychotic kingpin, Otto Rex. But first, they'll have to hack into his mind and infiltrate his highly secure lair of physical and virtual firewalls. It's a score that could set them up for life, if they can survive before Blackhawks touch down with federal warrants for Grand Theft AI. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available for pre-order now. The best thrillers, the thriller zone. And now back to the show. And we're back. Bill Landa is our guest. And I'm telling you, man, all that is mine, I carry with me is one of those books, as we said right before the break, that um, it's so funny. I'm catching both of us dancing around that. You, I want I want so desperately to say about three things. And I don't I don't do this very often. And I'm like, oh, we'll get to so-and-so. But because I know I can't say that. I can say, and if I, if I screw this up, Bill, tell me and I'll, I'll fix it in the edit, but it's written in four books. It's you know, it's actually called four books inside book one, book two. Um, and w- you're, you're into book one, the first section and you're loving it. I'm rolling along. I'm like, yeah, I got this. I got this. And then you hit book two and that opening line, which I cannot read, which I want so desperately to, cause I tend to do that. Um, reads when you read the first sentence, you're like, wait a minute, what? Back to what you just said before the break. You as the reader are now asked to sit down. Someone has just shaken the box, emptied it on the table and said, there's your puzzle. Get to it, baby. (laughs) Right. I think that's an engaging way of telling a story. One of the inspirations for this was Atonement, Ian McEwan's book, which jumps around and has a big reveal about who was writing it, who the actual author is of that story at the end. But it, 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 that book moves in, in tone as well. And that was one of, the, one of the great reading experiences I've had is there's a moment at the end of that book where the pieces fall into place and you realize, aha, now I see what it was about. And so, you know, you're trying to recreate that experience that I had as a reader and in turn give it to, to other readers. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's a neat trick if you can pull it off. Well, and... and- that's the perfect tee up for me to say this. And and again, for my listeners who have been with me for a year and a half and they hear me say similar things over and over, it's just part of the deal. But I don't say things like that, like this. And that is, it's I, I see, because I read so many books for this show, any two to maybe three books a week I'm reading, trying to anyway, to get to, you know, so I can have a great conversation. And... Very little, hate to say this, folks, but it's true. There's so little true originality out there these days. I'm not going to mention any names or any genres, but I can. There are certain genres that we have on the show. You got a pretty good idea when you pick up the book and you look at the cover and you start reading. You know exactly what you're in for. You know exactly what you're in for, and part of that is the beauty that you do it for because you like what you are getting. However, with this one, which is so original i nearly thoroughly original that you find yourself going okay i all right maybe i've read this somewhere but i don't think so and that's just kudos kudos times kudos to you (laughs) well i think that's what's cool about it is we've all had those uh experiences of opening a book 
and thinking, I've kind of read this before and you yeah. kind of know what's coming. And those experiences tend to be flat. Yeah. Uh, there are reading experiences where the book really does come to life and grab you. And there are books that you just kind of, you know, wander through or grind through to get to the end. And it, honestly, that's the more typical experience, those magical, vivid uh electric reading experiences where the book really grabs you, those are the books that, uh, A, they're the reading experiences that you remember and that energize you to read the next 10 books, but they're rare. It's the rare book that can do that. And I do feel like if you want to create in the reader an exceptional experience like that, you really have to go outside the usual forms because we're just very late in the life of this art form and readers are very sophisticated. They've seen every trick. It's really hard to, to give people an original experience at this point that they, that they haven't seen before. They're just very savvy. You know what, Bill, that is so true. And it's, there's a part of me that goes, geez, that's so sad, but it, (laughs) but it is true. I mean, um, there's everything's been done and everything's been redone and then it's hashed and then it's rehashed and then it's triple hashed. And then your hash looks like half hash of a hash of a hash. And, and you just go, Jesus in there is somebody somewhere that does something really thoroughly original. And so when that, I think, I think gone girl, when gone girl came out using that as an example, everyone was like, what, what? I didn't, that's original. Right. So, and then you had all the, outliers who came inbound to try to copy it and right down to calling it with anything with the name girl on it and tried to bastardize <laughs> it. And, and <clears throat> anyway, so I don't want to beat that point, but yeah, it's true. Well, it's also true that you're, I, I mean, you're trying to square the circle to some extent because you're always, <laughs> I always try to work within a template. I always start from something familiar and defending Jacob couldn't have been a more familiar format. It's just a, a courtroom story. <laughs> Um, and, and within that template, you're trying to bend the rules just enough. So I think readers do like to feel that there's, there's something familiar about the book. And at the same time, they want to feel that there's something absolutely new and original about the book. And so if you can, uh, introduce them to it in a way that promises something, uh, that promises both, that promises an original experience and also promises a familiar experience. That's the, the circle you're trying to square. And it's, as a, as a reader, uh, I, I love experiences like that. I love when, when you are in the hands of a writer, and I think you sense this right from page one yeah. with a book where it's gonna work, you just, kind of know you just kind of know that i'll i'll follow this guy because there's something about it that tells me this is going to work he's going to be able to land this plane i trusted you i'd I'd never heard of you i'll be straight up i mean i didn't even know (laughs) i I, when i went at when i drilled down on it i'm like wait a minute and i'm talking to your publicist or maybe the publisher and i'm blah blah blah, blah, yeah mm, oh, oh wait he he wrote Defending Jacob? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I don't know who he is, but give it to me, right? And so I started devouring it. I'm like, holy balls. All right. Well, <laughs> there. I, I usually tend to do this, Bill. I will highlight. I'll make little notes. And then I realized as I was prepping for this this morning when I started around 5 o'clock, 
I went, oh, everything I go to want to talk about, I'm going to give something away. So I'm not going to do that. I will say this. A, read this friggin' book. B, if you get halfway through, well, if you hit, when you hit book two, it's going to blow your mind off the top of your skull. <laughs> Number three, if your palms are not sweating by, it's, I marked it just to make sure, as you'll see the little thing there. Right about yeah, exactly. Yeah, you got a lot going on in that book. A lot of, uh, a lot of pen marks there. You got your money's worth. Uh, pen marks, uh, fold pages. My mother would kill me. Um, <laughs> My mother would too. Yeah. Her books were immaculate when she was done. I know it's terrible. If I if I folded a corner, my mother would look at me like I had just sworn in her. She's like, "That's what bookmarks are for." I, well, this is the thing too with the switch to digital. It used to be that books as objects were these precious things, and now it just kind of feels like oh, this could be an ebook just as easily. And it's I'm just scrolling on my phone, and the object itself doesn't seem to have as much value. All right. You also, it's also funny that there's not books around anymore. You can have people who are big readers and you walk into their house and there's no books around because they've been reading on a Kindle for years. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to give you something right now. Well, I'm not going to turn the camera around. I have a couple of hundred books stacked literally. I mean, this, this looks kind of, Oh, look, he's got a bookcase, which is boring, but I've got piles and piles and piles on the floor because I have run out of space. And, and when publicists reach out to me, they go, oh, David, I can send you a PDF or I can send you an ebook right now. It wouldn't be a problem. I'm like, no, I want to feel it. I want to touch it. I want to, mm-hmm. I want to smell it. I mean, I know that's old school, but I'm old school, so there you go. I want to make notes in it. I, I, want, to, I want to bend the corners. I want to put little stickies in it because, A, it's homework. B, that's the way I enjoy it, so shut up. Mm-hmm. All right, where was I? Um, okay, palm sweat. All right. I know I'm really tight on time, so I'm going to really fly through the remainder of this. There's two things I want to talk about if you if you just spend a second with me. And we've kind of covered some of it, but I want to do it. One is process. One is business. So what's your process? I just kind of dig that because I'm a writer, too. I know you don't know about the show or me, but I'm telling you right now. Uh, what's your process when you're crafting a story? And I realize, you know, it's only the fourth book, which is mind-blowing to me. But give us a little inside scoop to Bill's life. Uh, I wouldn't even uh, make, I know other writers are very regular about their process. I don't really have one thing that I do only because everything that I do eventually fails. And so I'm (laughs) constantly kind of switching things up and and when things get stuck, uh, which they inevitably do, I switch. Uh, So now uh, behind the computer I'm looking at is is a pen and paper and that's how I've been writing for the last few days. It's just on pen and paper because nothing else is working. So for me, it's always about uh, finding a process that will work. And I'm constantly uh, tweaking and experimenting to keep uh, making progress. I find that I tend to uh, overthink and overplan, and I am uh, way too uh, reluctant uh, to write imperfectly. Uh, and so it's always about moving myself from thinking to writing. Um, and so I, uh, I hesitate to give prescriptive answers about, you know, this is, this is the way to do it. And this is what my process is because what I'm doing, uh, this week probably won't be the same as what I'm doing next week. Okay. Well, you're basically failing, which I do consistently. Well, you're fine tuning things. You're finding out what works now. Yeah, exactly. 
All right, now let's do let's flip the coin and talk about the business. Now, there's the business side of writing, which a lot of authors go, "Oh my god, I can't talk about that. I'm going to get a headache." Yeah, but I want to know what you, Bill, have learned in this relatively short time about the business of this industry. And it is, and if you, if in my opinion, if you don't look at this as a business, it's not a oh a glorified hobby. Then I think you're missing the point. How about you? Um. I have been very lucky in that sense, in that I have uh, been able, I've, I've basically been paid enough that I've been able to pursue book writing the way I want to do it. Um, I haven't had to cut too many corners. The other thing is, I, I don't, I, this wasn't something that I set out to do. And so I've always considered this kind of provisional and and I think for a writer or any other artist, you go from project to project. I've never really thought of it as a career because even now it just doesn't seem like a, a smart way to make a living. <laughs> it's There's no uh, security. There's no uh, paycheck. There's no retirement plan. There's no health care. Uh, you know, it's just a precarious way to go. So to me, it's always just been about focusing on the project that's on your desk at that moment and just trying to be so good that they can't ignore you. Uh, and what that means in practice is being as good as you can be. Uh, as, as I say, it's working at the extreme outer limit of your talent. And if it's not good enough, it's not good enough. I mean, my approach has always been, you know, when this ends and it could end with any book and I've been prepared for it to end with any book, uh, you know, I, I would accept that and I would go and, and, and do other things if I had to. Um, and that frees you to, uh, to go for it, to, to, to swing for the fences. I, yeah. I don't want to be a single sitter. Um, you know, I, I am content to strike out occasionally if that's, if that's the price yeah. and to agonize on the way to finishing a book if that's the price. I realize that we have just touched on what is my closing question I ask everyone. So I'm going to lay this out for you so you can be stirring it in the pot on the stove there in the back of your head as I take one more <laughs> point to get there to, which is always my best piece of writing advice. That's what I close with. But you kind of touched on it. And I always, I, I find myself wanting to say, what is it, what do you think it takes to become a success, especially in this frenzied arena? I mean, besides being tenacious and dogged and putting in the time, I think there's an element of hopefulness. But I mean, and again, in the time that you've been doing it, what do you think? And and maybe it's just, hey, I had one. And if that's, if defending Jacob is it, or all that is mine, maybe... Uh, does well in sales, but doesn't get picked up, you know, I feel good about it. I mean, you know, what, what do you feel like organically success is? Now, I think that's, as, as I say, I, I always hesitate to give uh, advice to other writers because I, I feel like everyone's experience of this and everybody's process is idiosyncratic and what works for one person won't work for the next. Uh, and the main thing is to stick with it, as we've said. Uh, but having said that, I would say that in my experience, there are a lot of people who will tell you to be regular uh, and uh, work to quotas, produce so many words a day and accumulate a manuscript that way. And that's all 100% true. 
you have to have your processes in place. But I would counter that by saying what you rarely hear is to aim high, you know, be excellent, take a risk. Don't just write a thousand words for the sake of writing a thousand words. Try to be great. Yeah. Try to write something that you feel passionate about because the reader will sense your passion and your high aspirations and will cut you a break and they'll wait between your books and they'll attach to you in a way that to me the 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 grinder kind of books the books that are written to a genre they don't they don't imprint a reader the same way yeah and and I, and so i guess what i would say is yes do all of those uh good industrious disciplined uh sort of habits that everybody uh prescribes to people also write with your heart you know yeah. invest in it throw yourself into the whole thing this isn't you're not a banker you're not an accountant uh thank god the whole point of going into this is to live with passion and if that passion doesn't make it into your books because you had to write a thousand words a day even if it's a tuesday morning in february and you're really not feeling like you have much to say that day uh it isn't worth the price and it shows yeah. in the work yeah. you wind up producing a lot of stuff with regularity that maybe doesn't make you proud uh when you get to the end yeah. i would like to think as i lie on my deathbed that when i look over at that shelf of books i may not say those are all immortal transcendent thousand year books but i can say each of them was the very best i could do at that moment and i never uh you know i never choked up on the bat just because i was swinging for a single well and that's superb and i saw so we've got our best piece of writing advice there and you made me think of something bill uh, i'm a closet filmmaker i fortunately was able to take one of my very first stories that i self-published and uh, raised the money and did a film and i was the director of the film as well and you made me think of something really unique and that was i had to have i'd have an actor in a scene and the actor would be delivering a line that was on the page that i'd written by the way and they were delivering it i'm like yeah okay that's that's good and they're like okay you ready to move on and i'm like i think you've got something more and you could always tell the actors who would say oh Okay, if I could figure out a way to say to them, Bill, in this scene, I want you to take the words, first of all, you're going to internalize them as the character, but I want you to find a way to get that story across to me that maybe you haven't seen anywhere else or done anywhere else in another one of your projects. And it was in those moments when you'd see them take and that light of acknowledgement would go on, they'd go, oh, okay, I've got it. And then they would stop and take their moment. I'd call for action, it would be a little pause, and then they would deliver something that was completely different. And 99 times out of 100, that was the moment they got on the screen. Right, right. And, it's, it, and imagine how difficult that job is to do. There's a scene in Defending Jacob like that where the dad uh, of, of the murdered child uh, recalls uh, the child and, and, has to, and he comes to tears as he's doing it. And the actor doing that in order to get himself into the place where he could deliver that performance was reading a letter from his own child and sort of getting himself into it. And that's the kind of commitment and price that you need to be willing to pay. This isn't a job where you can just show up. Uh, you know, you have to show up and, and have, have everything in it. 
And if if not, you'll you'll produce a lot of stuff. And honestly, that's only realistic. Most people, most days, are not committing that deeply uh, to their work, and they're not delivering uh, at their utmost. And so, you know, you won't you won't hit it out of the park every day. But the idea is that only your A material counts. Yeah, you can't phone it in. If you'd like to learn more about William, WilliamLande.com is the place. Um, the book, of course, All That Is Mine, I Carry With Me. If I spend the next 12 minutes admonishing my viewer listener to go buy this book, it would be a waste of time because you have places to be. But I got to tell you something. This should be tip top on your list of books to read. It drops on the 7th. Um, go ahead and pre-order it now for crying out loud. I'm sure there's plenty of places, right, Bill, that you can order this? Yes, and in fact, if you if you go to the website, there's a link. It's actually a link to the publisher page mm -hmm. where they have aggregated all of those uh, places where you can pre-order it online. Your website is elegant, by the way, very clean and fresh. And I, I didn't want to say this, Bill. Uh, while I was digging in a aforementioned website, williamlande.com, um, I know that one book I have to go, I have to read. Maybe maybe what I'll do is I'll get you to autograph and send me a copy. I'll buy it from you, but it's The Strangler. And here's why. You had me at this line. The Strangler combines the family drama of defending Jacob and the hard-boiled noir edge of L.A. Confidential. Bam. <laughs> Imagine L.A. Confidential transported to Boston in 1963. That's the premise, and it's a much... It's just a gritty, old school kind of story. Oh, I am so in. But I do not want to end the show on that. I want to end the show on all that is mine I carry with me and make sure <laughs> we're promoting this bad boy. You're much better at marketing than me. Well, I got to tell you something, Bill. This One more time. One of the best books I've read. Uh, uh, I think I'm my wife, who's like, "Oh, I can't. how do you read all those?" I'm like, "Babe, uh, you got a little stack over there on nightstand. Put this one right on the top." That's all I'm going to say. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Well, thank you for your time. I we had a little bit of a challenge putting our schedules together. Thank you for your patience. We had some uh, snafus. It's all ironed out. It doesn't matter because we're here. We're doing it. You're an awesome awesome writer i cannot wait to read what you've got next which i know you're handwriting now right <laughs> yes for now and it will come out probably you never know you never know <laughs> there to go <laughs> <laughs> bill thank you so much thank you for having me it's been a pleasure thanks again to bill landay all that is mine i carry with me yeah, you got a pretty good idea how I feel about that book. All right, folks, coming up on the next Thriller Zone, New York Times bestselling author Deborah Crombie. She's got a novel on her hands. It's called A Killing of Innocence, and it's a doozy. I'm David Temple, your host. I'll see you next time for another edition of the Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.